Welcome back to the podcast. We are the Princes of Cinema. Well, we're all settled in on this cold winter evening, and this is the most crowded podcast episode yet. There's four of us. Are we going to do this, Bill? You know what? I can't wait. And this is uh, well, you this don't is have going to be a crowded, fun... Yeah, we're ready to start. This will be a crowded, fun episode, and this is one where I don't have to be the research guy. So I am counting on you and your team of experts to walk us through with the majesty of the Tree of Life. That's right, because Terrence Malick, we call we we misrepresent ourselves a lot. We 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 write a vampire musical, and we don't even like vampires. We call ourselves the princes of cinema, and we don't even like the Middle Ages. No, I, I do, but I mean it's it's not like that's we what we're into, right? We're just friends. No, we're not. We're not royalty. We don't have royal blood. We're paupers. Now I'm wearing a hoodie tonight. Although this chair, I, I'll stop with the nonsense after this. My chair is uh, is plush, very comfortable. So let's do this. I want to introduce our guests. We have uh, Jessica Sweeney from Philadelphia, really right across the river from me, presently. And John O'Brien from Denver, Colorado. I want to give a uh, brief intro. Welcome, guys. Can you say uh, hi or? Glad to be here, Tim. (laughs) Good to be here with you guys. So I want to introduce Jessica. (laughs) Jessica, first, um, a couple things to say. We have uh, Cuban family connections that go way back. I'm not Cuban. She is. But I bought my first high school car, 96 Black Honda Accord from her aunt and uncle. All right, South Miami Beach Honda. Second thing to say about Jess, she is the first mother we have had on the show. And this movie wow. has a has a mom, and that's kind of the centerpiece because we're talking Tree of Life. So, um, and then the last thing to say about Jess is that she works uh, for Collegium Institute. Basically, it's at the University of Pennsylvania, and the University of Pennsylvania was founded by Ben Franklin. And it's mostly a science, math, business, whatever-based school. And um, they bring humanities programs to campus. And Jess is a, uh, she's like fairy godmother of all, of all humanities programs. I mean, they now have those programs, right, Jess, at UPenn? Yes. Well, what do you mean by that they now have them? Because of Collegium? <laughs> no, no, the, the, you can actually like, major in English there now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it's, the thing is it's still very pre-professional, but I think for a while they've always, they've always had the kind of humanities going on. It's just, it's always been very much anchored towards um, sort of pre-professional studies. So a lot of the business school, engineering, nursing, um, things like that. But yes. Right. And John also is, is in the humanities. He's our second classical mind we have in the room with us today. John O'Brien and I met uh, years back, originally in San Diego, That's then right. north of Los Angeles. Um, he met Billy DePiro way back at some summer conference in Steubenville mm-hmm. when, when Bill was trying to be a, a nice young Christian volunteer. That was volunteer, <laughs> right? You didn't get paid for that. Uh, I, you I had to actually pay to go. Hand over fist. 
<laughs> you had to pay you to know, go? Yeah. Oh you God. had to pay to go. So, we got t-shirts, Tim. So John's older. Let's just say that. We're not going to name his age, but John's older than the rest of us. Uh, I want to say a few things. John runs the Aquinas Forum in Denver. He is also trying... Basically, here's the Aquinas Forum, and I am a fellow at the Aquinas Forum. It's not just Thomas Aquinas. It's the humanities. It's certain sorts of classical philosophy, history-based things basically offered to Denver and abroad for people that missed that going through regular school. I know that's not how you describe John, but that's how I describe you. It's basically later on adult education in the humanities. Um, I want to tell two stories about John. First, we were roommates in Denver, and guy roommates, there were four of us. You get up on a Saturday morning, you're coming to cook breakfast, you're in your boxers, except that John has an added apparatus Saturday morning. He wears a genuine leather fire hat. Is that right? (laughs) That's true, right? (laughs) I do have one. So I'm just saying that this was this was sort of a uh, he has he used to be a volunteer in high school. So I have kept it. I don't remember that story of wearing it cooking breakfast, but hey, oh, it happened. Are. But I want to show that you have a heart because you're from the heartland, Kansas City, born and bred. I'm sorry about the Super Bowl, and yeah, unfortunate. But again, uh, John also was the one that introduced me to Terrence Malick. And you were excited for this film. I didn't know that. Is that true? We were living together in Denver, and you were excited because you showed me the preview, the trailer of this film. And not only that, but your name, as your dad called you growing up, is the name of Sean Penn's character, Jack O'Brien. So not only did you love Terrence Malick, but he was coming out with a new movie, and it was basically the main character was the same name as you. And we have a third guest tonight. This is the first time on the podcast... I'm using an actual screenplay. Okay, this is no longer just visual. I got I got the screenplay, which I have studied and have notes. And I'm ready. Wow. Yeah. So that's the screenplay for Tree of Life. Yes, it is, John. I actually found this on a backwater website. Because you need to be a member of the Screen Actors Guild to access screenplays. And I but you if you're a member you can embed a PDF somewhere. So I found it way, way, way down on the comment boxes, some website. I had to screen capture every page and blow it up and then crop and PDF. It took me about three and a half hours. <laughs> that was years ago. It was, it was good beautiful. labor. That's, so, that's like some monster well stealing. So obviously this is kind of a tough film to approach because it's not your average film. It's not plot-driven. It's sort of the birth of the universe, the story of the human family. It's theodicy questioning who is this God that... um, Why is there kind of competition and violence and, and suffering? So... There are many, many avenues. I just like, I, I would like to actually start in the details instead of overarching things. What, what scenes, what details, you guys in watching it, do you just, what, do you, what did you like in the Tree of Life? And I should preface it one more thing while you're thinking. This is our last, this is our finale episode of our season. This is the 10th episode. To this date, our first episode still ranks first, La Dolce Vita. And my challenge to Bill was in our finale, let's see if we can, we can oust, push off the podium, gold medalist, La Dolce Vita, 
I already know because of his ethnic bias, probably not going to be the case, but it's, this is my favorite movie ever, and I thought, let's give it a go. And, and if he says no, then we'll try and talk him into it. So we're going to try and see his verdict. It all comes down to that. Everything we talk to leads up to sure. that. Sure. Should I respond to that? I would say, first of all, that there are La Dolce Vita references in this film. There are. And I think that the I, if we're talking about specific images, the image of a man in a, a black suit walking the shore, walking through the desert to the water, sand to water. Like, I think a lot of this film operates on kind of a psychological arch, archetypal level, where you have a lot of things that are that appear to me to be some sort of Jungian type of symbolism that is being like a shot of water sort of like bubbling and creating life and then a shot of a waterfall that it seems destructive. So you have this, it's like a, these like dualistic images right, right next to each other. And I do think that that seeking, that's where it I think connects to the ending of La Dolce Vita and maybe give some insight into what that ending means where he's like, watching a woman he can't hear her across because of like how loud the sea is um but yeah i've also seen um you know malik images um you know his reference to the seventh seal where there's that painter in the seventh seal and sort of Mm -hmm. trying to paint like the true christ and that also comes up in his recent film hidden life he's definitely a student of film i mean yeah. yeah, and and of, but 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 let's not assume that him referencing La Dolce Vita means he's he's inferior just after chronologically, right? <laughs> okay, I'll let you guys make your case. I I'm not going to reveal my feelings quite yet. I want to okay. hear the best argument mm, for why. So and what, we don't we don't need to even bring La Dolce Vita into this. Let's just hear why is this the best film? That's <clears> what <throat> it. And I put the images. What stands out to you guys? Right. Our guests. What are the moments? What are the best? Im- what are the best moments for you? That's the question. Yeah. So I guess one thing that comes to mind. Well, so there's this great quote, um, or not a great quote, but I think a good line from a, a review I read, and it was in an academic review. But he talks about um, how. So he says Malik's genius lies in his uncanny ability to telescope the viewer's focus in the blink of an eye. Moving deftly from universal themes to images that remind us of our individuality and back again, straddling the divide between the infinite and the mundane. Um, And I think for me, I am particularly fascinated, I think, by Malik's ability to do the sort of that specifically that straddling between the infinite and the mundane. Um, And I think Mm. the scenes that come to mind in particular with that are really the sort of like early childhood and like birth scenes that we see so that moment where we're like in the whiteness of the of the birthing room and we see this sort of pain and intensity but then it sort of there's also this sort of silence that's there in that scene that kind of washes over everything and i think there you move into that water where you're in this child's bedroom and you see all these little details of a bear and children's books and but then you move out into this strange sort of space where they're being guided in this light so just the sort of odd dance between like very tangible sort of everyday objects um sort of interspersed with these moments that sort of 
ebb out into the kind of like infinite sort of transcendent. Um, so I think that, I mean, that sort of whole sequence of the birth scene and, and sort of early childhood moving into the early childhood is one of my sort of favorite moments in the, in the and, film. And just to reiterate, Jess, and I'll, I'll let John go next, but a, a quick comment is that you're saying, I think it's true, Malik's moving between very particular things and very universal questions of existence, history of the universe, God, human life, love, competition, violence. I think you mentioned the birth scene of when Jack is born. That follows right after essentially the Big Bang and then the extinction of the dinosaurs. Yeah, so like, yeah. talk about <laughs> contrast. But but that's also true. That's real. That like um, the history of human life did start with such cosmic things, and it arrived in like a nursery in this little suburb of Texas. Like I know it's weird to view that spectrum in a movie. Um, but that that is true. Like that's our his that's human history. It starts with stardust. So I, I I think you're that's the perfect that's the, maybe the biggest leap that people might be confused by in the movie to think whoa I didn't sign up for an IMAX documentary on the origins right. of the universe. But it is true. It's like saying if we're going to tell the human story, it does begin back there. It moves to the nursery, then it moves to growing up. You know, and then all the all the lessons of going to school questioning suffering running around town and seeing different characters etc so i just think yeah. that's like a huge transition point that's great but it's hard for some people in viewing to like um get for like sure. what's going on yeah yeah i think you have to kind of like sit with it and like allow the like when i've watched it with students i sort of let's tell them like you have to sort of experience is almost like you would a painting or a poem where like you can't just try to analyze it right away or sort of piece together like what's happening and why but sort of like let images sort of like wash over you so that then you can sort of slowly start to see the connections um but that intrigues me too you show this to students this is part of like your curriculum like if you want if you want to relate to me in the collegium institute (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't done anything with it at Collegian, but when I taught high schoolers, I um, I taught a 12th grade humanities class, and so I would show it to them in the first quarter, actually, so it was kind of early on in the year, but it was right after we had read um, some Augustine and some Flannery O'Connor, and yeah, I we did these sort of movie nights uh, a couple times a year, and so I would start with Tree of Life. Um, wow. I, I did it twice, but... Uh, one group definitely was better, like dwelling in the sort of mystery and allowing things to sort of happen, whereas the other one, the other group, was a lot more trying to figure it out and a little more black and white. But um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, to, to, especially with twelfth graders, just like see their reactions and see how they're piecing it together. I remember Bill when he was in twelfth grade. Uh, lots of splendor, <laughs> strength, splendor. You know. He was a splendorous young man. I, John, I remember you took me out to a shed and you said, you better throw this rock through a window or else we're going to beat you up. Seriously? <laughs> no, that's in the movie. Oh. That's okay. <laughs> the guy's name in the script is Robert. You know, like those bad kids in the neighborhood that start vandalizing. They put a frog on a rocket launcher. John, yeah. your, John your take, because you're... I mean, we're going gonna to let you have the last word all night because you're, you're the elder, the council elder, the presbyter. <laughs> so <clears throat> the, the thing that comes to my mind is two scenes um, that I think contrasts a lot of what Malik is getting at in the entire movie. 
but very detailed scenes. One scene is a quote, and then the other scene is a very banal thing. And the first quote, the first scene is a, is a quote. It's from Job. Correct me if I'm wrong, but something to the effect of where were you on the morning of creation, on the first day of creation, when all the stars sang and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Something to that effect. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Right, then you said, yeah. And all the sons of God shouted which for is, joy. Which is at the end of Job where he's questioning, like, why does suffering happen? Why do disasters happen? And God, the answer, which may not be satisfactory to all people, God's basically saying, like, Job, these are too big a questions for you. For like the forces of nature. Yeah. Puts them in his place. So I remember when I first when I watched it the first time and I saw that quote, I I immediately knew, okay, I'm I'm in for a Malik movie, of course. Intense, multi layered, dealing with all the mysteries. And of course it was that, the Tree of Life. But the other scene is kind of on the far end of the spectrum of that, which would be when the boys are walking around, I think it's Waco, Texas, just a banal, you know, 1950s suburb or maybe small town Waco. Um, and he just nails that aesthetic and that feeling of the day to day, the drudgery, the boredom, the difficulty, the angst. And so for a director to go from and a writer to go from a quote of Job and then all of his you know, various scenes and, and plot lines to just that that scene, too, of walking around Waco, just nailing the banal aspect of life uh, was very moving for me. I'll jump in there and say, um, instead of a scene, we could roam around and, and talk about other things that stand out to us. Instead of a scene, all those details, um, this movie has an effect on me that other movies don't. And maybe it's just Malick's way of kind of not being so plot-driven, but more just like human experience and hints and guesses and hints and details. Um, I think this movie, to put it in a sentence, it unlocks memories every time I watch it. That I've probably seen it ten times. And, you know, I remember when I watched it... Um, one time, how how my it it unlocks memories that I, I actually haven't remembered sometimes in over twenty years or never since it happened. Like about how my dad wanted us to do chores and like how miserable that was, or how like Jack will like he closes the screen door carefully and then runs like basically once you run away far from the house, you're safe and you're out of chores for the time. Or to hear like when my mom and dad did fight some growing up, like just like old emotions. Um, or even even just the questions of the uncomfortableness of going to a cemetery. How I remember that as a kid, because you know, or or, or hearing from uh, hearing from the neighbors, you know, that somebody was sick or the the imperfections. There's just kind of a, there was a lot of childhood memories unlocked every single viewing in different ways. So that's I don't I don't know why that is, but. I guess he accomplishes the effect of trying to show like um, childhood, and it and it, it resonates. Doesn't resonate. It unlocks things for me every time. I think that one of the things that he's doing here, and it's similar to what you've said. It's like the framing of in the world you have grace, the way of grace, and the way of nature. And the way of grace is like caring and loving, and the transcendent. And then nature is. 
he doesn't mean like the natural world because he shows that the natural world is full of grace, I think, or what he means by grace. But it's like kind of Machiavellian competition. The the ability to get ahead and to not let anyone win one over on you. And and I think that what is so good about this film and what honestly should not work. If you think about somebody trying to do this, it does seem like it's like this shouldn't even work in a novel or, you know, trying to say the whole universe is dis- is distinguished into these two modes and everything from the big bang to the way that like fish operate or to like whether a dinosaur decides to eat another one or is is divided into sort of choices or like this sort of seesaw knife's edge experience of which side will you fall on um and then obviously in this film the father is representing more nature and his mother's grace but i think even you see the, like there's a couple sequences where you where there are just a sequence of shots of of jack perceiving his father and seeing his father make alternate choices in one way or another and then also not ever really being able to be sure which way it's going to go and i think that that uncertainty adds like a level of like resentment to jack and then he sees his brother and how his brother, who's a musician and an artist, like brings out grace in his father. And I think that, you know, the, this kind of like sibling competition and everything. So it's, it is, it is amazing how, like, how he's able to do that. Because I know that in like classic screenwriting books, they talk about scenes having a plus or a negative valence to them. Where if like you start on a negative, you want to end on a positive, then the next scene ends positive, and then it'll be negative. Whether it's like the outcome of the plot or like the emotional temperature of the scene or something. And I think he does that, but thematically, where the, each scene represents an alternative. And they're not even like fully scenes. Often it's like we're talking like a 10 second clip. And the clip maybe is just like we show the solar system or like some sort of supernova. And then we show the fiery surface of the sun, which is still able to maintain that kind of like emotional valence, despite not having any dialogue for a good 45 minutes. I'd maybe. And I would just add to that. I want to open up to our, our, our guests too, but that it's, it's a long meditation in that mode of that chosen mode of nature and grace. And it's, and it's I, I think it's it's somewhat based in you know classical thought. I think some of it's Malik in his own reading, but it's also I think the, I would say the contours of the human intellect. Maybe those wouldn't be your two categories, but we humans think in dichotomies. We like to contrast two things, even the mm-hmm. idea of positive and negative. You know, and I do think he's definitely working with constant contrasts. I think of two quotes which bookend the movie. He says, because he's Sean, Sean Penn, and as a child, he's more of like the sort of the questioning, doubting, sort of feels like he identifies with his father and nature and competitive. But his, he opens with the quote, mother, brother, it was they who brought me to your door. Like he sees God or he sees sort of the good, the grace side through especially two people, his mother and his brother. 
And mm-hmm. then at the very end of the movie, where they're like on the shores of eternity, we can go to that scene later. Um, there's this whole sort of like the mother is sort of surrendering her son because it's hinted at it's not clear, but he dies. And that's actually autobiographical as Malik was the oldest and his his younger brother committed suicide. Actually, he was a classical guitarist like the boy in the film. He was gentler and he was he was over in Europe and he was so pushed by his by his instructor. He actually like broke both of his hands and then actually committed suicide. So some of this isn't just like meditating on the universe, it's also dealing with grief at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's dealing with his own grief. And so it's, it's highly autobiographical. But I also think, too, is that he's going through these contrasts he sees in life and saying, like, what wins in the end? You know, is it just competition or... Anyway, um, I have more things here and there. We're almost at halftime, and I'm going to do a little... I, I planned this out, Bill. I didn't tell you. At halftime, I'm going to... I'm going to read a few selections from the script just to get wild. So, Jess, John, more thoughts. Let them flow like the scenes from the film. Don't even, (laughs) don't structure it. Don't do that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, the question of memory is, I think, really central to the whole film. I think... um, in some ways, right, the, the sort of the opening of the film, once we start with getting dialogue from, from Jack as, a, as an adult, there's a sense that he's trying to recall, you know, his mother, his brother, right, the, the people that brought him to to God, really, in some ways, um, but also the sense that, like, that's been lost, um, and it's something that sort of, it's almost like a place that he can't really return to, but has this desire to, and it's sort of... It's, I, all the sort of adult scenes, I think, are him sort of dealing with these memories that he has and, and sort of bringing them together and sort of trying to figure out, like, what are these fragments that I sort of, that surface throughout, um, particularly, obviously, on the day, sort of anniversary of his, of his brother's death. Um, and I think for his mother, too, she's she's also dealing with grief and, and sort of remembering, you know, her sons as children and sort of thinking through, like, what did she do? Did, did she do something wrong? Could she have done something differently? Um, I think, yeah, I just think the way he uses memory, I think that's why, like, your sort of experience of watching the film, that it sort of allow it sort of, for yourself, it sort of allows these memories to surface that you haven't thought of in a long time. I mean, I think that's just innate, like, the structure of how he builds the film. Like, I think in some ways the whole film is... I think that's why it moves the way it does because it's so much sort of a sort of reflection on memory. Um, and it is structured that way, just to be practical. They get the yeah. news at the beginning of the film that the brother has died. Mm-hmm. And then he basically, Sean Penn, who's older now, he's sitting in his architecture, mod, po- modern office, mm-hmm. and he kind of goes back. It's just an extended memory in his childhood trying to, asking big questions, but also just like memories flashing, flashing, flashing. Yeah. Um, yeah. John, I, 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 I have. To, well, after we have a little halftime, I have two very fun questions tailored to each of you. But John, from what we've been saying, tell us exactly what's going through your head. Well, this is gonna. Maybe you'll edit this out, but um, maybe not. Uh, may, maybe not. But you know, far be it for me to ever criticize Malik. Because he's the man. In fact, I told someone a few days ago, I said, if you lose your religion, doesn't matter. Just watch Malik. You'll be good to go. <laughs> you know, here I direct like a, non, a Catholic nonprofit. But um, 
I've always uh, been a little bit critical of the character in the in the screenplay saying there are two ways: the ways of nature, the ways of grace. That just personally, that doesn't that's not very satisfying to me. Um, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about it a little bit before, Father Tim. It's kind of what he really means is good and evil, but that would sound ridiculous. There are two ways: a way of good, the way of evil. You know, he's going to write that. So I get what he's getting at there, but um, I personally watched Tree of Life in a very difficult time of my life, and um, Malik was, I don't know, maybe one of the only spaces in my life that I feel like I could uh, have a home, uh, kind of sense that, man, this guy gets it. In fact, this guy gets a lot in ways, of course, much more than I do. But just to be in his world just felt home a little bit. But even then, when I first watched The Way of Nature, The Way of Grace, it's like, well, really? Um, and it wasn't very satisfying. It's still not. Again, I think I know what he's getting at, but those two categories to me, at the risk of sounding abstract, are so utterly important that nature has to be good at its root, though fallen, and then grace restores, elevates, transforms nature. But what's important is what's there in the first place is good, and then it falls. I, I know that sounds very abstract, but he asked me to say what, what's on my mind. And to that degree, the movie at times can be a little bit... There's just maybe a continuity, and, and uh, I compare it with Tree of Life, or uh, excuse me, The New World. And I, I personally like New World more than Tree of Life. I know that I'm probably in a small camp there. And Hidden Life is my favorite. But New, um, New World, for people that aren't familiar, is a Pocahontas John Smith yeah. told by Terrence Malick. Also very much a meditation on the land itself of the East Coast. Yeah. And just to sum it up, I would say that quote, there's, there's a way of nature, there's a way of grace. I actually think... In my opinion, he kind of cheapens then what he does the entire movie, which is an intricate exploration of the thousand layers of reality. Um, and it, it actually can't be reduced to there's nature, all bad, presumably in that comment, and then all grace, all good. And I like your phrase, John. I find, that, I find that fascinating, the thousand layers of reality. I mean, I, I do find a lot of the things he shows um, about, you know, s- summertime and the neighborhoods. And I, I mean... I'm a little bit personally tied into this because I'm one of I'm the middle of three brothers, and I was kind of the introvert, just like this movie has those same brothers. My older brother was kind of rebellious, just like the older one here. So there's a lot of resonance for me, but I, I do think what you say is maybe the most powerful thing. I would say the most different thing about Malik than other directors is that it's less about plot or theme classic elements and it is kind of I think he's trying to get like human experience Mm -hmm. of the world of nature of people of my inner thoughts he's trying to put that in movie form and that's like really daring and I don't know many people that have ever tried that and I know on purposely he said this he has said that the reason why Malik took a 20 year break from filming Days of Heaven in 1978 to Thin Red Line in 1998 is because he wanted to make... He made he had made two movies in the 70s, 
And then he wanted to make the perfect film, just about life, and not only the origins of the universe, but about us as humans. I, I am of the personal opinion, because of, of Malik, who, who spent about 30 years trying to make this film, and, and now after he made it, he's been productive, he makes a film every year and a half. But it, it, he, he's, he was trying to do something altogether new with the medium, which is to take the daily delicate details of, of day-to-day life and, and have a movie go over those rather than rely on regular elements. That's my take. Um, Jess, you want to say yeah, something? Go for it. True. Yeah, I guess I just have, I'm thinking about this um, going off of what John was saying. I haven't really thought about this that much before, but... I almost wonder, actually, so it's interesting that th- that sort of dialogue that happens, so it's the mother saying, you know, the nuns taught us there are two ways in this life, the way of nature, the way of grace, right? So I think it's important to, to sort of keep in mind that the nuns taught us this, right? So when she was a girl, she heard this. This is how it was explained to her. Um, so I think in some ways there's a, a way in which the film and particularly like the mother's experience that we sort of see play out is a... A sort of complicating of that lesson that she was taught by the nuns, but in some ways there's a, there's a, a kernel of truth to what they told her as well, um, and I think it seems like she sort of really took that lesson and wanted to like to embody it and happened to marry a man that, at least in terms of how Malik presents this film, sort of has more of that way of nature. But I think it, it my sense is that it he's wanting to complicate that dichotomy between grace and nature. So I don't think it's sort of grace is good, nature is bad, hence mother is good, father is bad. You see how those two grace th- those two ways are actually really interlaced. And so I think mm. in the kids you see that, you see how like the sort of the mother's way of being and the father's way of being are sort of battling and sometimes dancing within them, but then also the way that we see them as people, the, the parents grow and change and deal with, you know, joy and grief and suffering. Um, I mean, in some ways, I think that sort of one of the final scenes with the father where he loses his job, I think that's where you see like those two ways sort of really colliding, but also possibly sort of integrating um, in him. So mm-hmm. I think, I don't know, that's something I guess to think about uh, or yeah. And, it, and it's somewhat of Malik's own take on the the age old question of we see good things and bad things good, and it's just like they're not clearly delineated. That we kind of lean both ways, and we're not right. sure. Yeah, and yeah. Age, philosophy was in every time trying to deal with that. This is just sort of I think a lot of it's Malik's own way in language. Uh, I want to call on the Crown Prince William DePiro because. You you've been more quieter than usual because we have it's it's a crowded room and and you're you're the last of this film we we've all seen it multiple times. Give me just two quickly like what what do you what do you think of it? I mean what stand what else yeah. do you want to talk about? And then I'm going to give a halftime show, actually like a third quarter show. Um, I so I saw this movie in theaters, and I haven't seen it since. That's right. So I do, and I was struck by it both times I saw it. Like I've, I find it, um, you know, there are times where I think that there is um, some level of suspension of disbelief that you need to engage in in order to go in with him on this. 
but I think the film pulls you in in a way and it's mostly like there's these constant visual shots and that's one of the things that we haven't really talked was just like how striking his visual style is but I would just al- like I, 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 I would yeah. pair that with this some I would I my first impression of this film when I saw it Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh was that mm-hmm. it was so visual there wasn't enough dialogue like I was like I need more dialogue if this is real. But he actually, he, he relies heavy on just, like, speaking through visuals. Yeah. It's just him. And I guess he's known to be a director with a bit of a grueling production style, where he'll have, a, I think this was a three-month production. A lot of the scenes were improvised, although they get very close to the script. As, I mean, as you're probably going to reveal to us here. Um. He is working with natural light. He's working with the natural world. Some of those shots, I'm not even sure how he did, because they don't even really look CGI. But, I mean, if you're shooting nebula and dinosaurs... I mean, the dinosaurs were CGI, obviously. But the other things felt very... Um, so one real. cool thing on camera, and I'm not. I'm going to keep you rolling, though, is Malik mm-hmm. was actually given a grant years ago, like when he was filming this, to buy IMAX, paid for basically weirdly by Knights of Columbus, like the Catholic, like men's organization. To they they gave money to IMAX, saying we want to create family friendly films, and then they they gave money to Terrence Malick. It's like you know he's not going to make a family film. The guy's in orbit out there. So what <laughs> he wanted to make a film right. on the origins, growth, and death of the universe and the possibility of multiverse theory. So he had access to footage and IMAX cameras with this huge grant that instead of producing an IMAX movie, he used for Tree of Life. And later... That makes sense. Seven or eight years later, IMAX came and said, Hey, you're, you're under contract to actually finish this movie. We know you use the material for your other thing. And he put together The Voyage of Time, which is Brad, which is Brad Pitt basically narrating the birth, growth, death of the universe. Anyway. Interesting. So, going back to your earlier question to me, like the thing that struck me is it starts with the like Job quote and then the death of the son in just like this overwhelming grief and I wrote down some of the lines that are sort of whispered Lord why where were you did you know uh, who are we to you and that's and, then, and that's the mom right Jessica yeah, Chastain that's the mom. yeah yeah so these are the questions and then I think he attempts to say if we are to ask questions about humans we kind of can't in a way you can't just rely on religion I think is part of this or at least the religion that he had at the time because there's a certain cosmological understanding of the world that has come about since he had uh since he was a child, you know, they weren't, I, don't, I doubt in 1950s Waco, Texas, they were teaching uh, that we had common ancestors with amoebas and dinosaurs, uh, if you go back far enough. And I think that's partially the metaphor of the tree of life, where you're seeing like an uh, initial root branching out, which is the shape of a uh, evolutionary. And the thing is, it's funny, I just... Um, last week finished a 
book by Stephen Hawking where he's talking about a lot of these things. And it's and just trying to understand ourselves outside of like a religion that was predominantly like the theology was rooted in kind of a heliocentric model is or like a or it wasn't in a heliocentric model is like is what is I think he's trying to do because he's almost like I got to write this for myself mm-hmm. and it, some of it's anthropological in the way of like this is what I see in the world and this is also what I see in humans um, and I think that and I'm not sure if he quite says this or if this is me putting this on to him but we're talking about the dualistic uh, explanation that he gives between grace and nature but I also think that he doesn't use much words, many words in the script or in the film, because it is trying to represent some sort of, and the visual style is representing some sort of non-dualistic approach to these questions. And if you, and if you look at some of the visuals, a lot of them are shot from a low angle, which I think is partially to try and represent a child's perspective on the world, where you're looking up at things all the time. But I also think that there is some sort of childlike mind where these things are just kind of like hitting you without explanation. You know, I mean, for me, like a lot of these, a lot of these kind of questions of ultimate meaning come down to a um, kind of like an epistemological uh, question because I think our minds want certain structure and meaning and we impose that upon the world in order to kind of like hold things and be able to make sense of the immense pain of losing a brother or a son. But the cool thing about that is that it's not just humans. It's like the epistemology, the working of the structure of the minds of Terrence Malick. The cool thing is like Malick's mind is in every film. I don't know many other directors. A lot of times they're telling a story. It's more about like their craft. Here he's kind of saying like, here's what I've been thinking about for a while. And it's just like they're yeah. they're on screen. So it's never just a story about these boys in Texas or the universe. It's also like the story of Malik's own meditations over the years. Because you have like, mm-hmm. it's kind of this mix of like his childhood, but then over top of these childhood scenes, when you have, you know, the boys going to school, messing around with the bullies in the, in the, in the neighborhood, um, their dad goes away on a business trip, uh, family dinner and how like of a little it says in the script like a little hell that can be is just like you have you have to settle up to dinner like um, basically like you have over top of that think of his sound as well he's playing uh, you know what is I mean he's playing all of this sophisticated classical music that he that again is like the history of what he likes over the last 20 years the the piano piece La Barricade or whatever he's he's going into like Italian romanticism music. He's when 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 Sean Penn's wandering through this metaphorical desert. He's playing the unused day. Um, so it's it's everything. He's playing the Requiem during the Big Bang, like which is mm-hmm. about the birth. But he's also playing like uh, is it Fowray's Requiem? I forget. You know the 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 music about death. But it, I'm just saying like the Lacrimosa, Lacrimosa, which yeah. is Mozart actually. There's uh, there's just lots of, like, Terrence Malick and, like, what he's been doing in life and thinking about in his films, I mean. I think mm-hmm. unlike most directors who are telling a story, so to speak. 
And yeah, I was of- reading an article last week about uh, Gregory Allen Isaacoff, some of his inf- musical influences, and he says he loves Bruce Springsteen, of all people. But he, and the interviewer said, okay, so you know, uh, what do you like about him and where do you go different? And he said, well, I love his lyrics. There's a lot there, he says, but Bruce tells a story. He said, I like to be in two places at once in my music. And uh, I love that. And I think Malik does the same thing. Malik is uh, probably 15 places at once. Uh, and it just works. Because he's just, again, showing those layers and layers of reality. And he's, he's not telling a story. He's showing you. But not like the you know basic composition 101. Don't, don't tell, but show. He's taking you into the story in ways that many directors don't. Um, that, once again, became very apparent to me during Tree of Life. Can we, is this an okay time to take a brief break, and then we'll kind of actually come back and, and do sort of land the plane and just kind of yeah. give, I, and I, I have specific questions. But I want to say this. This is my favorite film, and we don't have to be sensitive or defended. I mean, I, I could talk about this for seven hours, and that wouldn't be enough. Um, but I, but I am kind of unsatisfied by it because I'm, I'm, I'm not satisfied. I remember years ago, a good friend of mine, Jonathan Tellis, we were in Steubenville, Ohio, senior year of college. We were going, of all things, ready, grocery shopping. At ready, Kroger's. So we're in the Kroger parking lot, and That's he right. asked me what my favorite movie is. And it just stirred up this real agony, like, well, I like a lot of movies, but it's like... If I really ask that question, I'm still looking for the perfect movie. And maybe this has become my favorite because it's so different than others. It stirs up every viewing, memories. It stirs up meditation on all different aspects of life. But I, I still have to admit, I mean, it's, it's not perfect. And I think part of that for me is that Malik had wanted to make the perfect film. And I don't know if he was fully satisfied. If you look at his script, so the reason why he got Brad Pitt on board is that Pitt actually read his script overnight and basically said, like, this is, like, the most interesting script I've ever read. I have to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the father in Terrence Malick's film. Um, Jessica Chastin was not known at the time, and so she told her family, I'm doing this movie with Brad Pitt, and her family actually for a while thought she was, like, lying. You know, they're like, okay, <laughs> we'll believe it when we see it. Um, but when I read the script, it's so ambitious because he's weaving through images, he's weaving philosophy, he's weaving evolutionary science, he's weaving religion. And I love the script so much, but he didn't fully realize it in the movie. The movie's kind of quieter, simpler. And some of the script is also overwrought. Like some of the dialogue between like son and mother is is way too philosophical and loving for like a nine-year-old. It's just like, ah. So... I kind of have in my mind Tree of Life. I have movie, I have script, and I also have like the ideal of a movie, and I've just never, it's never coming. And I think it's like taught me the limits of art in some ways because I, I kind of weirdly, vaguely still wait for that and dream about it. And uh, I just don't see it ever coming. I want to read just a few fun passages, however, how the script is far more ambitious. And exotic than um, than the film. I mean, um, 
the original thing, which was called Project Q, I mean, the opening scene was like a Norse god underwater and like a fish swimming into the god's nostril. I mean, really rad stuff that didn't make it. Okay. So you have clear Job stuff. A f- a few, I'm just going to jump briefly and read a few fun quotes. You have some clear Job stuff in the... Um, he clearly based on, like, like Job has three friends. There are three women who, who kind of counsel the mom about losing her son, give her these reasons. And there's this amazing, uh, there's this amazing quote here in the, in the script. This is the mom's grief. Um, the best of her lay in his soul. She lived through him, saw through his eyes. Apart from him, she cannot see the work of God. It's like she was so connected to her son. And then it says, cut to a bare tree in winter. Nature lied. It's like, ooh. This whole sense of like, that's like a Terrence Malick strip. Nature lied. And then he goes into um, just this sense of like, that's what death makes you feel like. Like, what a, spring gives way to summer, gives way to winter. Um, then it, Terrence Malick, too, people don't always know this. He's very anti-urban, anti-city. He just like is... He doesn't have a philosophy about this proper, but he's very aggravated by that. So basically, I, Billy DePiro, who's living in Queens and commuting to Manhattan, <laughs> I'm not reading this against you. This is just from the, this is like fascinating. So here's the scene. Um, it says, scene, city of destruction, the artificial world, late day to night to dawn, Jack as an adult. Jack wakes to find himself in that landscape of paralysis and despair, which today goes by the name of a city. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, whoa, dude. The familiar world has assumed a threatening aspect. He talks about how strangers don't look at you when they pass. He lingers. The stars are washed out. The sky is haze. Um, the moon shines down like any other of the senseless lights above. Like a bird trapped inside a room, beating against the windows, a ceiling. His soul struggles for a time. He says, the building around him are like trees of a wild forest. The false nature a universe of death, a sightless world roofed over. He actually complains multiple times about humans having roofs, which is the most radical sort of, like, complaint against the universe and, like, modernity. Just, like, don't you realize that we humans never lived with roofs permanently over our heads? And this has changed us? He goes like this. I mean, if, he, he, if he tried to show this in cinema, it would, be, it would, it would last a 16-hour film. He goes, the sights of a modern city, it could be Chicago, New York, Houston, Paris, Mumbai, Los Angeles, or a combination of them all. We never see the whole, no skyline, no defining moment. And so he, instead, in the movie, you kind of get this, this where it's filmed in some Texas city, some sort of like whitewashed modern sort of antiseptic thing rather than like this busy crazy so he wanted to do in the script more of this meditation like like city life versus rural life but it just didn't it was too ambitious but it is cool so sitting there as an adult Sean Penn in the film just like goes back to his memory of his childhood because he's grieving his brother on the anniversary of his death in the movie it's like mystical and urban I'm going to read this to you ready this is uh, this is like almost like Dante or T.S. Eliot. Um, So I'll read this here briefly. Uh, He's in bed at night with his wife, 
And it says, Jack must find a way out. He must journey through time from the outward to the external into the heart of creation. It's like, all right, Terrence Malick, how do you want your character to journey into the heart of creation? (laughs) A figure stands near him. It's like in the middle of the night. A figure stands near him. He cannot see its face, but he feels a strange peace flow into him, a sense of radiant love. Who are you? Jack seems to ask. Why can I not come to you? And then, the, the, then, then he actually wanders outside of his bedroom because it says the figure reaches out, touches the crown of Jack's head, then he's gone. Night lifts off like a fog. The street lamps are still flickering. And the morning star burns in a gap between two small skyscrapers, solitary, unheeded, the promise of a world which is here but a legend. The star seems to address and speak. The morning star between skyscrapers speaks to Jack, you, who are you? I mean, it's just like, it's, it's a little more uh, galactic, let's say. Then, like, yeah. Malik goes. I think some of these moments are hitting the kind of college freshman uh, places where, where, I think I said before, like, this shouldn't have worked. Like, there's a place where it could tip into, like, that cringy, like, too big. But it's like he, the guy's a genius with a camera right. and uh, an emotion. And so. even just the ambition, though, it, though it's high flying. It's like I mean, he goes, he quotes Saint Augustine. Then, like before you take this journey to the birth of the universe, he goes, "Let us sing a new song. Let us tell a new story. One of which the ancient tales takes its, but one which takes its inspiration from science. Let us search for the permanent amid the fleeting." Um, Jack walks down the Santa Monica shore. Surfers bob up and down the lineup. Children play in the tide. And then it says at the edge of the city, he sees a tree. He reaches out to touch it. The instant he does, the universe springs up from its source. Change scene. <laughs> it's like, okay. Mm. I mean, th- but, th- but then there's other things. Then there's more details. We, we go back to but like, I love this detail where, like, the mom is he, he actually quotes the golden rule of Jesus like do unto others as you would have them do unto you and then they're in the kitchen and the mom actually like cuts she like she's like preparing lunch and like it's for like him and his brother so you have a peanut butter sandwich and she cuts the sandwich and she says to him which one do you want and he points to it and she goes okay give that one to your brother and then he does but he's in this crisis like is this the right way to live, or is this the way you lose? It just it, there's mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of the details made it into the film, but there's just it's this whole meditation on the mother. How when he takes his first steps in the script, she starts meditating on those are the first steps away from me, and he'll just get further and further. Um, there's just like this amazing, and there's I mean I'm not going to read you. I'll read one more thing. I'm not. I mean there are there are full meditations on evolution. This makes it into his other movie, Voyage of Time. But in the end, Malik clearly struggles to answer the question of grief. So he doesn't have an answer for why are things competitive? Why do things die? Like, he mostly um, shows it through symbols. Like, he's trying to say, if there is some release, some reunion we call heaven, he, he basically asks himself in the script... Um, how how do any of us show heaven? And so he talks about sunflowers turning towards the sun. He talks. He, he gives these whole lists of images, um, and then he talks about the shores of eternity. But again, he goes that beach scene in the end. In his mind, as a director, is not heaven. That's the shores. That's us trying to get there, walking there. 
and we have a reunion and there's gladness and he but he kind of just like the movie he just shows a bridge to the other side of a river it's just he knows like and a bird flies across right and with earthly symbols he he basically says like i can't answer the question of why like there's turmoil and questions and loss and i also can't show you the better place that many people and myself include hope for um but through symbols, he kind of like shows how a mother can. You, have you remember that scene on the beach? Because the mother, Jessica Chastain, she's not just. She says, "I give you my son." There's this sort mm-hmm. of surrender. It's not. It, the question's in the head, but the heart kind of is the response in the end. Like, I surrender. I trust. I give you my son. But there are other hands of other women clothed in white who are like helping her. Whether those are angels, whether those are friends, um, but there's just some sort of like. Malik is trying to say a Philly phrase, which we say about Philly basketball, trust the process. I mean, he, as much as he questions the process of life, he's also kind of saying, I, I don't think it's just a tragedy in the end or confusion in the end. We can kind of trust that there's... And, and that's my favorite quote from the whole movie is when the dad loses his job, he looks around at his boys and he's full of regret with how he's treated them because, yes, he's a a businessman he has inventions he plays Bach on the organ but he but he's harsh on them and he's and um he says that phrase in the end and that's directly from the script like of the glory that i the glory was shining all around me and i didn't see it and and then he says you boys are all i've really done in this life and th- there is something about that like there is so much good and glory around us shining out and like we are uh, those who are numb, we are those who are wrapped up in plans or things, and and I sympathize with that deeply. Not as just somebody who also goes through the process of theodicy, like whoa, how can we make sense of the universe with so much going on? But I also admit to myself, like Malik does, that you can kind of learn trust of things as big as the processes of the universe and God. You can also. Um, learn to see the glory around you, and I mean that. This movie has had a real effect on me. And maybe it's the combination of images and music, but to look at the particular things, the, the, the things shining out at you each day, I, it's, it's, it's had a huge effect on how I actually look at day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. a, l- a little bit of the script samples, but my own take. Jess, yeah, you, you go. go for it, Jess, please. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, well, that quote, the seeing the glory all around, um, it's like a direct quote from the Brothers Karamazov from the scene where... Sergei I was just Zosima, about to say that. Yeah, yeah it's I'm like reading a, it right it's now. It's almost word for word um, from one, about his brother that dies. And he's, um, so he's and the one that, that Somebody should do a PhD. His brother's Alyosha is for sure. His younger brother who dies is represented by Alyosha. Even so, physically cast the same somebody way. Somebody needs to do a PhD on Malik's sources. Because he's like... Yes. Yeah. But yeah. the thing is, he's a recluse. You can't find him. He's not going to ever tell no. you. No. <laughs> True. But no, I think it's interesting. Yeah, this sort of... There's this desire. I think I think in some ways, the Sean Penn, his character, right? There's the sort of letting go, similar to his mom sort of surrendering her son, this sort of letting go of needing to understand it all and needing to figure out what it all means and sort of have the answers. And I think in some ways, there's a sense in which he realizes... Yeah, seeing the glory all around, seeing 
allowing the kind of like childlike wonder that he had as a child to sort of reemerge, that somehow that can begin to be an answer to what he's seeking. And I think in some ways, I mean, that's part of the tragedy of the father. And I think he, the father realizes it in that scene where he loses his job and quotes that, that sort of passage from the Brothers Karamazov, the sense that the things that actually brought him joy um, and that sort of brought out this sort of wonder in him as a father. So like playing the organ, the inventions even, right, that are not just sort of like the day-to-day job that he's supposed to be doing. Those are the things that he's in some ways kind of like squelching his children. Um, Like he's not allowing those things to continue. And I think in that moment he sees that like he could do it differently um, and maybe sort of sit allow his kids to maybe not go down the same path he's going he's gone down that sort of he realizes that he's um yeah missed so much uh so i think yeah it's just an interesting sort of but then it's odd because the scene you get afterwards of him it's like is he really letting this reality or truth that he's sort of encountered or thought about change the way he interacts with his kids right because you get that scene where they're moving and he's sort of you know i don't know i i I don't know what to make of that kind of juxtaposition of that's those two scenes but um yeah i think there's something with and and there's that line from the mom towards the end about like do good to them wonder hope right um so i think in some ways that's her also sort of dealing with trying to answer the question of suffering and grief and, and life. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I think that there with the dad, there are a few scenes that show that he has the wrestling of these two things within him where he will say like, you shouldn't, don't be like me. I gave up on my, I should have kept going in my art. And then, but there are other scenes where the film shows that those qualities, his nature qualities, are good. Like when that kid drowns in the at the pool, and he's like there, kind of like calling orders out, like telling people what to do. And it's you can tell that people are looking to him and kind of like needing something from him in that moment. And I think that maybe the. I know we've talked about like the dualism and like whether it's good or evil or, you know, how he sort of, he doesn't exactly punt at the end, but it says like, we can't answer these questions. And maybe the answer is like, it is and not that it is good, but it is, it is like, what is the meaning of a flower or grief is, and this is something we experience and, and maybe we are just a diplodocus wounded on the beach about to die, uh, or whatever that dinosaur was. Just, And I think all people, too, the word occurs to me in the end is, is hope, because it is forward-looking. People, people may define what they hope for in the future differently, but um, we are the only animals, Malik seems very clear to say, that, that look forward to something that, yeah... Mm-hmm. And wonder too, to address what Jess just mentioned in that quote about wonder being mentioned <clears throat> um, from beginning to end of, of the tree of life. You know, for me, it it is all about wonder. 
and um, you know it begins with that quote from Job. And as we be as we've been discussing, he's exploring so much and he's asking so many questions and just exploring the infinite infinite variety of what makes up his characters and even nature. And um, the thing that strikes me when I see Tree of Life and pretty much any Malick film is that his questions are better than almost anyone's answers. Uh, his movies are just mm. a giant question of the kind of the religious sense, but there's, there's aspects of nihilism and, and, and evil and difficulty and boredom, but hope and beauty and wonder and it's just kind of a giant um, exploration of wonder and that to me is deeply satisfying compared to many people's so-called final answers I also want to raise the question too of of family because obviously Malik has other films with these themes he has Song to Song which is set at South by Southwest Austin, Texas he has you know um, To the Wonder which is Ben Affleck, who doesn't say anything the whole film, <laughs> and he's with a French, you know, wife. And again, but I think this film of all Malick's focuses on family units. And I, I want to quote two things that I found to be um, like every everybody needs some sense of family. I know that it turns out differently, but I, I want like this is from the script. I'm sorry to do this read from the script. Two very brief things. This is because we were talking about Brad Pitt, like coming to his senses and saying, I see the glory all around me in the script. Um, they leave the house. They, they, they say goodbye to the tree. They actually leave this weird offering of like dead fish. They like bury this dead fish in marbles and playing cards like under the tree. And the kids say these like weird like code name things like Chicha Malicha. <laughs> it's like it's like really um Unique. They have a little something, like they have a little time capsule they leave. Right. And and it's sort of like the tree has watched over them. or But whatever, like, this mm. is from the script is like, this is, uh, I think, again, uh, tears sting his eyes. Um, and then she she's basically saying, sometimes you can't stay where you were. We have to move on. And she goes on. And then Malik actually just writes this on the top of the page. The family together that is enough that's how he ends that whole scene which is a strong sense of like we totally take for granted being together like the humans at our side and Mm -hmm. um the other thing too i love quiz question revelation we know that jack is the oldest boy do you know the other two boys names it's not said in the film it's really funny it's in the script the middle boy blonde hair is named rl like rl stein goosebumps the third That's boy? what that revela- revelation just gave me. Yeah. And then the third boy is named Steve. Uh, and he actually, it, it's, there's a lot of cute scenes. But R.L., the middle son, I love... R.L. O'Brien. R.L. O'Brien. He says this, I, I think this is... A, I, I'm so mad this scene was cut, but again, it talks about that, that family, that neighbor theme. Um, mom and dad... It, he, here's the scene. This is the full thing. Interior living room. Um, Mom and dad are fighting. Their voices are heard from the other room. Um, When they next, when the boys next see their father, he pretends that nothing is wrong. Uh, Does he think they could not hear? That's like the psychological thing. And then he says to RL, 
uh, son, what do you want for your birthday? And he says, you. End scene. <laughs> it's just like, wow, wow dude. So there, yeah. there is a lot of that, like, like we, we, there are problems growing up among, like, other people. Um, but it's also, like, uh, we take for granted how good that is. We still do. So I think that's a key yeah. theme about this, this Malick movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. The role of neighbors is funny. Because a lot of the worst things that he does... Or his shames are through his neighbors. Because he, like, breaks into his neighbors and, like, grabs, like, a negligee. And then we have that whole Freudian sequence. And, like, he goes and destroys the dress out of shame. And then you got the neighbor boys egging him on and kind of, like, hurting a dog. But, I but mean, then there's also certain things where, the, like, that house burns down. And you have the kid with this, who has, like, been injured and then... They seem to have like a care for him. Yeah, like so, neighbors. Like, neighbors to me are, are there. Are, they are the outside world. I mean, I could tell you like different sort of whether it's cuss words, whether it's trading baseball cards, whether it's the birds and the bees. Like all these things were learned like from like boys down the street. Like, <laughs> like it's, 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 it's that's true. Yeah, and it's like the outside world is like you're like peers who you're like sitting in second grade at a desk cluster, and it's just like you're in society as a seven year old. Like you've entered it; it's over. Society is no bigger than Meninis, right? The Meninis, what? The the, the Meninis were an elderly Italian couple where we used to play basketball and touch football in our backyard, and they never cared. They opened their backyard to us because it was it was it was a longer field than we had. Great field. All the neighborhood boys would just go to this elderly couple's amazing backyard, and they would actually, like, silently... We'd never... Maybe we waved to them? I don't even remember ever seeing them. Barely. But, I mean, you go go just, like, you go across the street to that yard. You're not just playing football. You're going to meet Matt Bellardine, Zach Hara, Chad Bauman. You get the public school kids, the Catholic school kids, whatever You might get Kolaris there. Right. And then, hey, maybe we'll take it up to your backyard for a home run derby. First time I ever punched somebody in the face was at the Meninis. I'm just saying, (laughs) like, you you cross the street, things might happen. That's true. At a basketball game. I won't tell more details, but... So, I guess we're we're over the hour, about an hour and ten, and and, uh, I know that... But John is visiting a family. Jessica's with her family. Uh, Jessica, could you give a quick comment to this film? Very much centers on being a mother. You're a mother. I mentioned that. I mean, what unique perspective? I mean, I know that's opening the question, but like you watched Tree of Life before becoming a mother, and you saw it more as like a, a human who's not yet a mother, and now you've obviously that changes people. Your perspective. Yeah. So like. What occurs to you differently now? I guess that's my question that we here in this will never be able to answer. Hmm. Um, well, interestingly, I haven't watched it in its entirety again since having my daughter, and I would like to do that. Um, I think... Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I guess, in part, I see the kind of, um, like, a mature innocence in the way that she approaches being a mother in in terms of um, this awareness that she's, she does have this influence, but there's also a kind of um, 
I think what I see now is like that she she knows she has this influence on them and wants to sort of like imbue them with this goodness that she sees in the world and in sort of beauty like in in the books that she reads to them or you know teaching them words looking at the little plate that's in the kitchen um that then you kind of see the impact of that on her kids by these sort of like sort of magical realist moments where you see it like her floating and she's sort of like a snow white figure right these sort of like sort of allusions to children's literature that her kids seem to be imagining at different points in the film but um so there's this sort of like innocent but like intentional approach to I think wanting to give that to her children but also this sense and I think it's there pretty early on but definitely as her children start to grow that she can't control it all um and sort of learning like you know what is her role and also the fact that the goodness that she's trying to give them can also sort of backfire on her um so yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm a fairly new mom still. I have a 14 month old and uh, the second on the way. But um, yeah, I think I think it just sort of this sort of sense of beauty and wonder and goodness, but also in some ways the kind of like human limits of that. And yeah. And I sense that from other moms, too, I talk to, which is that there's, there's separation. As much as you want to provide... I was just talking to this uh, young mom yesterday. Her name is Ellie. And I just said, like, you seem, like, more protective, more cautious. And she... Like, you want to protect him. She named mm-hmm. her, her baby Leon, which... She's from Naples, Bill. Really from Naples. And that means lion. Mm-hmm. If you... You know... And, and she... And I said, you seem like you want to protect him. She goes, I want to do everything for him. <laughs> I want to teach him to swim, to speak, but it, but it's still sort of like reaching out. Like I want to try and reach out. And John O'Brien, you're from the Midwest, Heartland. Okay, you 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 are this way. You even by this culture. Malik is as well. He was he was born in Illinois, but raised in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Very rural, very similar to you know outside of Kansas City. So in all of his films. Do you have a Midwestern advantage because he's he's Midwest? I mean, what do you relate? Do you st- I mean, you're a big Ooh, Western guy. You're a big Western guy. John's like he's watching a Western every other night. It's also because he's a bachelor and he just has time to do that. But and he also relates to every cowboy he ever sees. That's true. It's very true. I love my westerns. Um, no, I I think if I could take a stab at it, I I think the the Midwest approach uh, can really offer um, a bit of clear eyes to to the daily events of things and and um, because in the Midwest and for the time being let's just lump old Terrence Malick in that the Terrence, the Midwest, kind of in general, you don't have to prove anything to anyone. You're just accepted for who you are, and you know you go into social situations or professional situations, and there's all different dynamics. But I think more than in other subcultures in the U.S., there's a sense of hey, this is who I am. Take it or leave it, and I'm appreciated for who I am. And I think when it comes to art, that that's a good thing because you just you see. You see things as they are. And interestingly enough, a lot of our American presidents from the Midwest, Lincoln, Reagan, and others, I think, 
Um, <laughs> all, all Eisenhower. Of all I mean, Eisenhower defeated the Nazis, but he was raised in Abilene, Kansas. You know. See, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna comment because, like, I don't know where most presidents are from, so I would, ex- except for Rutherford B. Hayes. We went to his house. That's true. Ohio represent. Oh, wait, Garfield. No, no. We're not. We're not cheering for Ohio for sports, but we will represent presidents. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting, but, though. But there, I can there, just kind there, of relate a sense of clear-eyed. Uh, uh, at its best, maybe comfortable that, in your own skin. You know, you're 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 kind of comfortable in your own skin. You just you want to depict reality. You want to explore it. I think it, the Midwest, at its best, actually offers that. Maybe because it gets such a bad rap, especially in lots of the subcultures that a guy like Malik's from, that to go back in to his Midwest roots and then explore some of the Midwest scenes in his other movies I as think, well. too, a little tie-in reverence for the land. I mean, Malik is, like, from a rural place, and he, he went to Harvard and then to mm-hmm. Oxford and tried to do Heidegger and other concepts of world, of nature, of planet, you know? But then also, like, people say that the only time you could possibly meet him, because he lives outside of Austin, mm-hmm. is that he is commonly bird-watching. You will see him with binoculars running around town. Going after species of sorts, our, our, our feathered friends. But literally, like, this is, I do think, like, I lived in New York for two summers and I, I loved it, but I also remember one day going, just taking the train up to. Bill, have you ever been to. Uh, the Cloisters? <laughs> no, the Cloisters is nice. I'm talking about. Uh, uh, upstate. Well, let's just <laughs> not upstate. It was it was barely upstate. It was I don't even know. Schenectady. No, not no. I would never say good things about Schenectady. Uh, anyway, I, I went like an hour north of the city, and the people I, I saw like we, I, we were having breakfast because my mom was seeing her good friend, so I traveled north, and we just had breakfast on the back porch, and she had a yard. With grass and a tree, and I, and I actually was in a psychological semi-state of shock. I was like, "Oh right, right, right. There's a uh, there's land." Anyway, I'm just mm-hmm. saying there is something about space, American Midwest land. Malik's like mm-hmm. deeply imbued in that. I think. Yeah, I think in Tree of Life he nails both the natural beauty element, but also the the urban. I think that scene is takes place in Austin. It could be. Mm-hmm. Stake in there, but okay. So he he wants to nail the urban, but then he gets that crossover in in Waco. Like there is natural beauty, but there's a little bit of that urban influence in the in the in the house. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely see the Midwestern roots coming out there. So grand finale, Crown Prince himself, mm-hmm. Crown Prince DePiro, <laughs> who, who doesn't even think it's funny that I'm saying that. Uh, I, I enjoy it. I, I, I already know you, you like La Dolce Vita more. It, it remains, yes, in the number one spot. I don't know. It, like, they're just so different in my mind. In some ways, they're similar. They're both kind of, like, scenic. And they're not, like, you know, La Dolce Vita has an overarching plot, but it's largely episodic. But also, Marcello. This is, like, a piece of... Yeah. He's a questioning character, though. There's a similar narrative. Yeah. More yeah. particular to, like, late-night journalist partying in 1960s Rome, but... Yeah, I mean, I might like Tree of Life more, but I don't think I'm going to watch it for another ten years. And I would watch La Dolce Vita again in a couple months, I think. And I don't know what wow. that says. 
It, uh, but you also hate ranking, so maybe you don't have to. I do hate ranking, you know, and I think that's because I'm grace in your nature, and that's really <laughs> what this episode was about. No, um, the thing is, like, this film, I think, uh, I think it feels like it got into my brain, or I saw this finishing a, I mean, we've got all these humanities experts here, I did, like, a great books program at Notre Dame, hence your sweatshirt here. Not hence your sweatshirt, well, but I don't like to talk you up because that won't help you. Yeah, but I feel go, like go these PLS, were a lot of the, the way, questions that PLS. Oh, you know PLS. These are the questions you haven't yeah. revisited in fifteen years since graduating. Is that what you're? Well, I think that I have. But they are sort of running in the background of my mind. And I'm wondering to what extent, you know, at some point you stand at the edge of that bridge that he's talking about. And it's how long do you try and see through the fog to the other side? And how, and, you know, I think a lot of these questions, and especially at the time when I saw this first, or the kind of things that would keep me up at night and I would do that and it you know some of these themes still do now but maybe I I don't know I just acknowledge that I'm not going to be able to like say well given that we the universe started in a big bang and is ever expanding and we like how are we supposed to understand like religion or grief or any of these things in light of these it, it's like I'm kind of like these questions are bigger than like a human brain can really sort through. But the weird thing like Malik shows us is we're bound to make the effort. Like to be human is to make that effort some, even as children, probably sometimes more so as children who have the 10,000 questions that they start to lose when they start listening to hip hop and junior high like you and me. But then we overcame that and then we started to get more smart and well, because of some good high school teachers, we had great English teachers. That's and we true. got more philosophical in college. Then, I didn't know that. That's then we're cool. then we're doing the back of the back back of the Honda two a.m. talk sessions, and so I do yeah. think I do think as John was saying earlier, it's about uh, a lot of this is about like one thing that's definitive of humans is we 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 question everything around us, and it's kind of a, it's kind of beyond us, um, but we can't help ourselves. Yeah, and we don't come th- away with no answers or no changes. It, we, we are changed, and sometimes that's not always intellectual. Sometimes it's just like it, it, I, I actually think intellectualism can lead to, in the end, kind of breathing more deeply and being like, you know, um, I, I, I've learned respect for this great thing we're a part of, rather than just fearing it. Because I think it begins with fear. There's so much out there. I don't know if I want to get into it. And we become better acclimated to the universe by at least questioning it. Yeah. And I think... And I and I may be projecting more onto this than is there. But I do think that... The question... Like, the next stage, I feel, of my spiritual growth... Uh, is not going to be through membership in some way. Almost kind of going back to one of John's earlier things. Like, you know, it's it's less about... I think that there's like a place for ritual and sort of answers, but but John's um, kind quote, of like but, allowing them. But bring that up. What did John say? If you're not going to do religion, you do uh, you do Malik. 
I will be your cheerleader for the next 10 years. I mean, um, I think I, I'm currently submitting to writing MFA programs, so we'll see what it is. We're at some damn. version of art and non-dualism. And if I can get even start scratching any of that. I mean, we're just getting personal now. But I do think that Malik's... S- Podcast for four, Billy. Come on, Bill. Yeah. He starts to... I think Be that is kind of where he comes. afraid. <laughs> I go before you always. No, Be- please do Be- say Jim Cowan. He's guys from Stuart. Be personal. He's rarely personal. You, you guys are opening him up. This committee, he's, yeah. he's at his best right now. Yeah, I will say that uh, La Dolce Vita didn't get me quite as personally. But it mm, that was more of a... That that was more of an escape for me, and I think it raised some big questions. But it didn't. It didn't take the thoughts that I go no. What like if I am upset, someone hurt my feelings, then I like somehow get back to the start of the universe to like try and make sense of why that hurt me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like then, listen. Those are midnight. Questions. I almost those are three a.m. I almost want to say. <laughs> That, uh, that 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 this this is the most philosophical movie we've watched to date, and so that's why it yeah. fits Billy DePiro because he's one of the most philosophical friends I have. But then I want to switch and say this: I don't want to just say, "Hey, Bill, choose this as the number one film of the season because of me. It's my favorite. It does access that side of you." <clears throat> I mean, a part of me wants to wants to keep La Dolce Vita on top for one reason because mm-hmm. it's just more fun that way. It's this. Italian epic rager film. It'd be fun to see what else could bump that off. This is a different kind of movie. This is an orbit movie. I don't know if it has yeah. to play play in the, the game at all. As Jessica said, this feels more like a poem to me. Yeah, yeah. and I think that's why a lot of people hate it. You know, if you, Father Tim and I have a friend. You know who he is. Who watches a movie like this? Like. Oh gosh, what is that all about? I don't. I need to go. And then he'll know, comment get, on details. Get, he'll comment on details. He's a, he, he. You know. Yeah. He'll be, he'll, he'll be like he'll be like his tie is crooked. You know, they can't even dress these characters. Yeah, there, there's a lot of people that turn on Tree of Life. Like, please don't show me that. I've been told that. Please do not show me that movie. At least fifty percent. At least 50% of the people just like, oh, it had, like, dinosaurs in it. It's like, come on. That was, like, 45 seconds. And you you can see the poetic, to your point, Billy and Jessica, like, it's a poem. I think that's right. It's a poem on screen. A lot of people don't have that poetic inclination. And I don't want to spend much time at my house watching movies. Maybe we'll put on a lesson for him. But it is very poetic. He's our modern William Blake, Terrence Malick. And and like Plato, I mean he 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 does yeah. in his film Knight of Cups, like he's quoting the the Phaedo the Plato's treatise on the soul, while like people are going Sky and this girl are going on a date to an aquarium, and probably going to jump in bed okay, afterwards. I, I might need to watch that next. I've also heard that that sort of mirrors the plot of Sunset Boulevard. I'm currently working on a script, somewhat modeled. Read that, that two so. months ago. It's awesome. But hey, let me just throw this in one last second here. Um, I watched my first Malik movie during the year-long physical recovery from a brain injury as a, as a victim of, of an assault. It was, um, yeah. Head surgery, the whole thing. 
bad deal. I won't bore you with the details right now, but I watched my first Malik film about six months after that assault, and I was, shall we say, in a fragile state psychologically and spiritually, and I felt like I was home when I watched that movie. And I didn't know what happened, and I couldn't put words on it, but all I knew is that I um, felt peace, felt um, communion with this director. I was like, who is this guy, Terrence Malick? So two years later, I'm, of course, spouting off his great movies to Tim. Um, and that there's something to be said about that. You know, I, I really think back uh, with great appreciation for that uh, beginning my Terrence Malick journey. I'll do that briefly, too. Just to end, uh, my first Terrence Malick viewing was the New World Pocahontas John Smith in the theaters in junior high or early high school. I went with Johnny Fisher, my cousin, and some other people. And I actually, my takeaway is that it was, it was like, okay, but I also noticed that, like, they didn't kiss, because that's, like, a cultural thing, <laughs> my high school <laughs> takeaway. They didn't, like, have the instinct to kiss each other. It was, like, they highly... couldn't. Legally, American law, she's too young. It Colin was... Farrell was sensitive to that, apparently. Oh, and, really? And the legality there is, like, she, yeah, Koryakin okay. culture is too young. So it wasn't just, like, a Malik, like, Powhatan tribe culture with John Smith. Okay. I have not Maybe seen this that yet, too, but I'm but I also... too. Now, my second impression was watching... I feel like that's just like a colonialism landmine to do a film about that, like, within the past decade or two. Agreed. But I'm just saying my first Malick film was that. And then I didn't rewatch anything until I saw Tree of Life the week before I entered the quote-unquote monastery. Literally, it was like the last thought-provoking thing I did with my Uncle Mark, his wife, and my Mm -hmm. sister. And I've been thinking about Malick ever since. First watches for fun. Jess, Bill... Yeah, Tree of Life was my first Malick film. I watched it, well, I saw the trailer in college and then didn't watch it till attempted to watch it once with my brother, and it was, like, not the day to watch it. To watch it off to the first, like... It's got to be the right day. Prior I, to the creation even yeah. starting, we actually paused and we're like, we have to... Another time. And then I finally did watch <laughs> it in grad school, um, I guess probably, like, a year after that. Um, it was, like, the last thing for a class on um, I guess it was Catholic thought, Catholic thought and culture uh, renaissance to contemporary so we ended with this film and we, wa- we watched it kind of like on a big projector screen so it wasn't like as big as a theater but it was big and it was just yeah I remember like the thought I had when it ended was I don't know how he did that and he just sort of took sort of yeah, ideas that I've had right. and like actually right. like put them together and Me too. Yeah. put them on screen. Um, and then people will yeah. say, "Do what? What did he do?" And then you just talk forever and can't say it. And you don't say he had a t- crooked tie on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't talk about it at all in the class. Actually, we just watched it and then we all left. Then went on but, living. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, my first time seeing this was in. DC or outside DC. I think I saw it with I believe Chris and Claire Madden and Kevin Hyder, if I'm correct. I remember sitting in like we were kind of like pacing around, and I remember the shape of the the cement. Uh, they had like these weird kind of octagonal or octagonal like tile like things. You know those where you have weird memories associated with things. It's like 
one was tan, one's like a little darker red, and that was like I think because I was walking around looking at the ground trying to like figure out what the hell I just watched. <laughs> I went afterwards to Eaton Park, the place for smiles. I used to work there. I did not. I was a busboy. I did not smile very much. Well, but beautiful place. Uh, that's the season, everybody. It's as that's inconclusive it. as are. this as this universal journey. It's good to be with you. I'm thankful. I feel like this conversation has been thankful. I think this movie can help us be thankful in its mysterious workings. Yeah. Thanks for the invite. Yeah. It was great to have both of you on. Just great to meet you. This was a, this was a treat. And I hope Tim, thank you for pushing this as our capstone for season one. Oh yeah, yeah, and thank you for it, it ended in a mysterious, inconclusive way, as it should. Amen to that. I think so. It, well, to quote from the first quote, "Where were you?" The first words. I don't know, and I love that quote too, Billy. Do you already stole my it. my main quote too? Is her first question to whatever higher power. Who are we to you? Ooh, that that haunted me mm. for months. And it still haunts yeah. me. Still haunts me. All yeah. right. Uh, and that is the question we will ask our listeners. Who are we to you? <laughs> like and subscribe. Five stars only. Yeah. Peace, everybody. <laughs> We're going to start a season two. Season two begins further down the road. We'll kick that can like childhood kids. Be well. Thank you all. Yeah, definitely. See you, Jess. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you.